Welcome to the podcast where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution and learn that all the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated. Welcome to Darwin's Black Book. Welcome to Darwin's Black Book. My name is Tom Land. I am a zoologist and wildlife filmmaker. And I'm Rebecca White. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Exeter in biology. And welcome to our second of three shorter-than-usual holiday specials. So this one's going to be all about festive botanicals, so the plants you associate with Christmas. And we want to take a little bit of a look at the biology and some cool evolutionary features behind them. And this will then be followed by part three, which is called a multicultural Christmas creatures, which is an absolute tongue twister. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Yes. And that's coming up in just a few days time. And it's interesting that you should say plants that, well, you, I associate with Christmas because as we found out, I, I hardly actually associate any plants with Christmas at all. I seem to be rubbish on it. Apart, I did say <laughs> orange, to be fair, in the potpourri on the windowsill. I mean, but, that's fair enough, but why is that the first one you think of? <laughs> I don't know, it's so, so Christmas orange. So I was asking around, and my mother helpfully said the Christmas cactus, which I learned was a cactus that flowered at Christmas, but that's as far as I, I thought it went. I think they're quite big in the States, the Christmas cactus. Learning things all the time. And then I had the, the ponsettias, which... Still confused why they're to do with Christmas. They, they're flowers. They are anyway. a gorgeous red colour. That's probably why people like them. We've always had one in my house at Christmas. I assume that's why. But other than the colour... I'm going to go with I'm, I'm going to sure. go with that. The colour is, uh, is... Actually, yeah. Oh, it is a... Just Googled it. It is a beautiful red. It I like that. It is a beautiful red, yeah. Mm. Uh, then you've got, of course, the holly and the ivy, which is a song. But, uh, a carol. Becca, you actually... And a carol, indeed. Becca, do you know why the holly and the ivy are Christmas-related? I, I thought I did, but now you've asked me that, I actually have no idea. I asked myself that and also had no idea. Holly is, is well, mid-autumn they starts to bloom, all the berries start coming out and red, very festive colour. Festive ivy did confuse me quite a lot. The reason why they're often put together, ivy actually grows surprisingly well on holly bushes and... There's a, a few things it's supposed to have done over the ages for it to be used in the uh, in in the Christmas season. Number one, it's quite good at countering the effects of alcohol. <laughs> is that uh, true? Or is that is that a myth? I will let you know when I do further research we do on not the internet. Recommend? <laughs> do not recommend that you take ivy to, uh, to cure your cure your hangover. In Shropshire as well, this is from about 100 years ago, in Shropshire, if you gave it to someone before 12pm on Christmas Day, it would ward off the devil all year, and I'm going to, um, I don't know, it should probably be brought back after the year of 2020, I assume. <laughs> Hopefully 2021 will be better. Or, as well as there's, there's one more thing, if you are in the know, if you left it floating in a puddle for new, um, one of the leaves left it floating in a puddle from New Year's Eve to the Twelfth Night, it could predict the future. How? How could it yes. communicate with you? Um, I th you, ha you have to read it. Like tea leaves, kind of, 
idea. It's just a floating leaf, isn't it? <laughs> Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Moving swiftly onwards. So. Yeah, as, as my my look and dive into the world of uh, Christmas plants was a, a roaring success, as you could probably tell. And with in this, Becca decided just to choose the Christmas tree for me. Yes, I chose for Tom. I just just do a Christmas tree. We it need was, to record this episode. It was it was bad. Anyway, so here goes <laughs> the Christmas tree. A rundown of what you thought you knew. Um, which actually I, I learned an incredibly large amount about the family in which they belong to, which is the spruce and the pine trees. So a small bit on the, on the Christmas tree itself. It's famous for being introduced to Britain in the Victorian period by Queen Victoria herself and her German husband, Prince Albert. And that was brought in in 1841. But it was introduced into Germany in the 1600s, the 1700s, um, actually from the kind of the, the, the rest of the Mediterranean. And from there, the first evidence of it is actually in Egypt from a heck of a long time ago, where evergreens were actually revered. It was, it was from the times of the kings of the Nile, so uh, over 2,000 years ago. But it's where evergreens were revered for surviving in such harsh climates all throughout the dry season and the wet season as well. So it kind of stems back really quite ancient. <laughs> stems back. Way. <laughs> that was awful. Uh, <laughs> So I'm going to focus on spruce trees because they are the ones most commonly used in the West today as a Christmas tree. And there are 35 species of them and they can grow up to a whopping 60 metres or 200 foot when mature. And they tend to grow in the northern latitudes, in fact, all above the equator, but in the far north. But they can grow as far down as uh, Morocco and around mm. the entrance of the Med as well. And they have really intriguingly, a whole host of adaptations to allow them to survive in really quite harsh conditions, often where other trees struggle or cannot even take root at all. So these are trees that can survive the conditions of Scandinavia and Siberia and northern Alaska and can reach minus 30 degrees centigrade. That is cold and would very much kill most trees. And they've got two key adaptations that allow them to survive in such horrific conditions. And the first one is the needle leaves themselves, and the second one is, is the fact that they're evergreen. So looking a bit at the, the needle leaves of any conifer, they are a fascinating type of plant that allow them to survive in, in extremely snowy cold conditions. The needle leaves themselves, instead of being a much broad leaf that you see in, in temperate regions, the leaves have reduced themselves to a single very thin strip oh, spike. These have an extremely small surface area, which means they can reduce moisture loss through transpiration, which is basically the movement of water from the inside of the leaf to the outside of the leaf through tiny holes in the leaves called stomata. That's like sweaty plants. Sw that, I was going to go, it's part of the, <laughs> it's part of photosynthesis, but... <laughs> Therefore, by reducing their surface area, it reduces the amount that they transpire into the air around them, and therefore it actually prevents freezing, because there's also less water in the leaf itself. The very small surface area of the needle leaves also help to minimise the amount of snow that gathers on them, as compared to a deciduous broadleaf tree under the same conditions. Where in the UK, if you remember a few years ago, Becca, we got a massive snow yes. storm. It was fantastic. I was still an undergrad. It was it one was... of my friend's first ever time she'd seen snow. Or, Never forget. That's insane. So all that time ago, we 
saw how massive leaves, in relatively to a piney, the large leaves that the British trees have, I saw several branches actually come down because of the weight of snow that was on top of them. One of them, very near my house, actually fell on top of a car, which isn't ideal in, in the height of winter. But the pine needles themselves, they're so small, these leaves, that the snow can either roll off them or they can bend to such an extent where they can actually hold up a suitable amount of snow that the tree can actually support. As well as that, the outside of the needles themselves very waxy, which helps them to retain as much water as possible. Again, just preventing water loss. Like Vaseline. Like, exactly, like, exactly like Vaseline, because surprisingly, in these Natural very Vaseline. northern climates, you only really get snow. You don't get much, you don't get many periods in which it, in which it rains, which is actually weird to think about, because you can't absorb ice through roots. Therefore, retaining as much water as possible is, is, is the way to go. As well as that, they are, again, really, really thin. They contain a huge small amount of sap, less chance of freezing and causing frost damage. The second main chunk of, of their adaptation into these conditions is the evergreen side of things. In the, again, in the northern latitudes, the summers are very short. The seasons in which that some of these plants can grow can be as, as low as 80 days of the year. That's their entire growing season. Winter being six months of darkness where the sun doesn't come above the horizon. But by having, by being always green, by always having leaves around, you can probably see where I'm going with this, but therefore no matter what the conditions of light that are there in that day, they will always have leaves in order to photosynthesize. If the sun comes out for five minutes, melts an inch of snow, and, and that leaf gets some sunlight, it will still be able to photosynthesize, it will still be able to, to metabolize and still be able to grow. No matter what happens, they don't need to waste time regrowing leaves come the spring because you might only have a few weeks and it'll take a week or two for your leaves to come out. And also it takes a huge amount of energy to put all the leaves on the tree every spring. So, so tell me a bit about their development. How do they grow in this kind of environment? So yeah, their development is really, really interesting how they, how they take root, how they grow. The... And another, I suppose, the only the, the big trade-off from being in the cold and extremely uh, short growing seasons, and of course, low liquid precipitation. Believe it or not, in the in these regions, they are extremely slow growing. Like, like really slow growing. Like, like really slow growing. <laughs> the slowest. I can't quite extend how slow these trees grow. The slowest growing trees of all. In the warmer Mediterranean climates, they of course can grow much, much faster, but in the short growing season, they are reduced to a few centimetres a year, if that. So if you see a tree that's three or four metres tall in, in northern Scandinavia, Russia, Alaska, these trees could be a few hundred years old. So Christmas trees are really affected by their environment? Extremely. So the and ones that they grow. we grow in the UK, they will probably grow over a number, uh, perhaps a decade. And it's it's always something to take into consideration when you're choosing a Christmas tree, I suppose, because this thing has, of course, grown over quite a long period of time that you've now put in your lounge. So mm, yeah, appreciate be, your tree. Treat your tree well. Plant it when you're done with it. <laughs> Can you just do that? Actually, really interestingly, I learned of an organisation in London called the London Tree 
rental, Christmas tree rental. Basically, you I've rent heard a, of this. you rent a tree every year. You can rent the same tree, and basically they give it to you in a pot, and then you give it back at the end of Christmas, and then they replant it for the year, and then they give it back to you the next year. They do that for ten years, and then it retires it, and it sounds sinister retiring it, but no, they literally <laughs> plant it in a forest. That's Which a great I th- idea. I think it is absolutely incredible and also it reduces the amount of just wastefully chopping trees down. So there is that. Oh, fantastic. Good to know. So I have mentioned quite frequently about the northern climates and, and how cold it is. And there is one biome I'm looking at specifically. It's called the tiger. It's estimated that a third of the trees in the entire world exist in a band across the northern latitudes, across Siberia, across the northern Scandinavian parts, and across Alaska. Of course, top of the world. Top of the world in one band split up by oceans. But this band is is made up almost exclusively of pine trees and spruce trees, of course, species depending on, on locality. But as I said, yeah, a third almost a third of the trees in the entire world. This is 17 million kilometres squared or 6.6 million miles squared of land. It is 11.5% of the land's area made up of basically one forest, almost, um, interrupted by, yeah, again, as I said, a few oceans admittedly. But this this is the second largest biome after all of the deserts combined, which I think is wow. extraordinary. The mean annual temperature is zero degrees, which kind of gives you a kind of a vibe of how cold this place is. Um, it can go as low as 20 centigrade, almost 30 centigrade in winter in the kind of the Eurasian um, or North American sections, but it goes to minus 50 degrees Celsius in the Siberian wilderness. And that that is why they grow so slowly. They just grab as much energy as they can in the shortest time they can and then grow a centimetre and don't do anything for the rest of the year apart from survive. You can see them there. They're kind of quite short, stubby trees. They do not reach the the heights of 200 foot, the ones uh, much further south. These ones are short, stubby, old, gnarly trees, which are, are, honestly, it's it's a haunting uh, forest to look at, but it's absolutely beautiful. Mm, Sounds fascinating. Love to see it. Uh, Tiger, by the way, is spelled T-A-I-G-A. Just if you want to look it up. Not as you expect. But as I said, they're really, really slow growing. That means they are, of course, old. The family, of course, is famed for the oldest trees in the world, the bristlecone pines. You have some trees which are looking at three to four thousand years old. In fact, I think the oldest single tree is in California at four thousand eight hundred and fifty-two years. The majority of of trees in the taiga, however, are looking more towards three to four hundred years old, perhaps seven hundred and some bits. Um, the bristlecone pine is actually incredibly hardy and, and perfectly suited for a Mediterranean environment, which is a bit actually ironic. I'm talking about a Mediterranean tree after I've talked about how all the icy trees are so so old and and lived in in the cold conditions, but the bristlecone pine is a fantastic example of of survivorship you only you can see this huge gnarly tree which will be completely dead but it only needs a tiny tiny strip of bark connected to the roots to remain alive and it'll have one little leaf coming off um and it'll be quite literally four thousand years old which i think is just absolutely extraordinary they're the bristlecone pines but that's looking at a single old tree whereas if you look at the oldest organism in the world it's 
It's also a pine tree. Its name is Old <laughs> Chico in, in Sweden. But the special thing about this is it's, it's not the tree that's the oldest bit. It's the roots around it. These roots date back 9,562 years ago. The tree basically regenerates every 600 years or when it gets damaged. It falls over and then from the roots, a new tree is, is sprung, which this I think is... a, a Christmas tree that existed thousands of years before it's Christmas a, existed. It's, it's quite literally a Christmas tree that has existed since the last Ice Age. Wow. Which I think is... A hardy tree. Absolutely incredible. And, and the process in which it does this is called vegetative cloning. Basically, a branch touches the floor, it might spring new roots, and then that adds to the network of roots that already exist that are thousands of years old. And yes, you could cut down that tree and it will, would spring back, which I think is, should it have the energy and you haven't, you know, pruned it at the wrong time. But the amazing thing is, it's only five metres tall. <laughs> Which I think is absolutely incredible. Um, but it is the maximum age that a tree can be in this region. The glacier from that region of Sweden, the Fenno-Scandinavian glacier, retreated from that area 10,000 years ago, and this one popped up for 500 years later, which means it really, really was one of the first founders after that glacier left, which it literally couldn't be any older. And there's another 20 or so trees around that area, over 8,000 years old. So in terms of a survivor of a tree, the spruce trees and, and the pine trees are honestly absolutely out there. They're incredible. And yeah, I kind of fell in love with them even more so than just the, the lovely the lovely scent that they have anyway. Anyway, I've whittled on way too much about, about uh, Christmas trees. Uh, Becca, what Christmassy plant do you have uh, for me? Well, that definitely was in the spirit of the magic of Christmas. I didn't realise Christmas trees were so evolutionarily awesome as well as culturally awesome. So I have for you the mistletoe. Woo! So before I go into it, what do you actually already know about mistletoe? It's incredibly niche. It is quite literally. Um, there, there was a comic when I was a kid called The Asterix. Some people might know it. Basically, there was a druid. Very niche already. It, it was but There was a druid that went and collected mistletoe and made made magic potions in the Celtic period and that's that's it. Oh and it's a parasite. Yes, I'll accept the parasite part. <laughs> um so moving swiftly always let's uh <laughs> Actually they're not full parasites, they're hemi or semi parasites. Ooh, what is and that? That is because as well as being parasites in that they obtain water and minerals from a host, so from another plant that they're kind of like leeching onto, they actually manufacture their own food through photosynthesis. So they so don't rely half half. entirely on their host. They do. They still need. They get still get essentials from their host, but they can. They also do half the work themselves. They don't rely entirely on their host, but oh, they would die without it. Not completely freeloaders, then. Yeah, they're hemi parasites. So the mistletoe fruits themselves, they're small white berries and the leaves are also small and very kind of leathery and still green, um, which is unusual for a parasite. But because it does its own photosynthesis, you still get the green colour. Parasites are normally kind of colourless or white or yellow because they don't, they don't produce the... They don't yeah, need Yeah, that's light. quite interesting. So yeah, you still have the green leaves. The fruit, the white berries, are really poisonous. Oh, I did know that. I did know that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and actually, in reality, most companies that you buy mistletoe from 
have replaced the fruit with artificial plastic berries. <laughs> um, so you can safely kiss under the mistletoe or even kiss the mistletoe if you want. But make sure you check. Also, we're in a pandemic, so don't just kiss everything. <laughs> or um, anyone. So the word mistletoe doesn't just refer to one species. Uh, you can have the European mistletoe, which I'll be focusing most on as a European. Um, Visum album. Or the American, which is for a dendron flat... <laughs> for a de- <laughs> I love how you stared at that and just very slowly crumbled. It, how? Flor- Florodendron flavicens. Hey, nailed. And the European ones, so V album, are way more toxic. So we have the more toxic one over here. But these toxins don't normally kill you. The active substances are two chemicals called forotoxin, which you find in the American one, and tyramine, which you find in the European one. And when you ingest this poison, you will get blurred vision, you get diarrhea, nausea, vomiting. It's really not very festive, but it's probably <laughs> not going to kill you. <laughs> oh, the festive, uh, yeah. <laughs> However, although it doesn't kill you, if a host plant gets a really heavy infestation, so lots of mistletoe start growing in it, it can kill the host plant. And V. album, so the European one, can successfully parasitise more than 200 different types of trees and shrubs. So it's quite generalistic. It can just pick and choose where it wants to, That's to live because it can just have pretty much any of the 200 hosts. It's survive it in its own right, just less honest. Yeah, but they actually prefer apple trees, lime trees, so linden, hawthorn and poplars. That's quite they incredible. They have favourites. I saw it was last year in Southampton, uh, where we both went to university, uh, the cemetery there just a, there's a huge common which is beautiful and at the end there's a cemetery and in the trees there there are tr- when it turns into winter you can see these blobs like circular starbursts all throughout the trees which is just the mistletoe coming into uh, bloom which you can only really oh, see fantastic. in winter which is absolutely stunning to see and yeah they're not all bad so i've got all the evil side out of the way but they're actually some species of mistletoe have been recognised as ecological keystone species, which means this organism is really important to their ecosystem community, so the kind of the food web and the way everything interacts. Keystone species are essential to that. And types of mistletoe come under that category. And lots of animals depend on mistletoe for food. So that's just one of the, the kind of more obvious ways it contributes to the food web, so it's kind of near the bottom. But also a study of mistletoe in junipers, so another plant, found that more juniper berries sprout in areas where mistletoe is present, even though it's a parasite, because the mistletoe attracts berry-eating birds, and the birds then eat the juniper berries and help spread the seeds, so mistletoe can be really important for helping junipers reproduce. It's quite interesting, there's, a, again, a hemiparasite, it's, it's the centre of quite a, quite a large, complex ecological network that brings the whole entire ecosystem together. That's, that's really quite intriguing. Yeah, something that you would think would be really detrimental is actually so helpful. And so um, important to keeping that ecosystem alive. Yeah, and there's there's more. That's not it. <laughs> and interactions like this can have really dramatic influence on the diversity of the area. So if you have more mistletoe in an area, then you'll have higher diversities of animals. So lots of different kinds of animals will come to the area. Thus, rather than being a pest, mistletoe can have a positive effect on biodiversity, providing really high-quality food and habitats for a broad range of animals in forests and woodlands worldwide. Unexpected, then, but the yeah, meaning that's... of Christmas, bringing everyone <laughs> together. together, even though you're slightly toxic. No, oh, wait, hang on a minute. Yeah, <laughs> no, it kind of falls apart there. Um, 
so I want to just take a, a slightly controversial turn on this. Um, when you use mistletoe for medicine, Ooh. I'm going to start with a disclaimer by uh -oh. saying, if you are considering using mistletoe for medicine, go to your doctor. Um, I'm going to talk about some examples where it has been used, but these are really rare, unusual cases where it's happened like once. So I'm just going to start with that. So people do use it, herbalists especially, use it to cure circulatory and respiratory problems. Again, go to a doctor. Um, one case study that I found that was very interesting was its use for cancer. Uh -uh. So I know when you hear that, it almost certainly oh, means this isn't going to be ringing. true. The Christmas bells turn into just alarm bells. <laughs> the jingle bells. <laughs> It's turned into klaxons and it um, oh, goes downhill from there. So this originally started in a lab. So there was a Petri dish full of cancer cells and they put some mistletoe on it and the cancer cells started to regress. Now, just because this happens in a lab in a dish, this doesn't mean it's going to happen in a person because they are such different scenarios. You have all sorts of systems going on. One is slightly more complicated than the other. Yes, the human body, well, any any system, any organism. Literally anything is slightly more complicated than a Petri dish with some cells in it. Absolutely. And you hear all the time them using ev well, companies using evidence of something that they saw in a lab that really cannot be directly transferred to humans. Um, but that's where this started. And there is little evidence that it actually helps people with cancer. However, there was one case study that I found really, really interesting. So there was a woman who had a really... A really specific kind of cancer and it wasn't going away she had to stop chemotherapy due to complications and this was kind of a last case scenario let's just kind of see what we can do we've run out of of our kind of traditional typical ideas um so they thought they'd try this mistletoe idea and it actually worked for her two years later she was doing much better and it's really important to know, though, this evidence is really small. It's just one person, one type of cancer, and there could have been other factors that went into helping her. And we're not ready to use mistletoe yet. Maybe there's hope for it in the future, but we do have much better options at the moment. I was going to say, do they know why that worked on her as opposed to not other traditional treatments? Um, it was more... The traditional treatments would have worked in killing the cancer but because she had so many complications. Um, the treatment interacting with that probably would have killed her before. It got rid of the cancer. Uh, yeah, it's probably not something you want to follow up with, is it? It's, uh, probably anyway, time but to she stop. was okay, so that's that's, that's quite a festive. happy and if story. You, happy yeah, but story. If you, if you do want to read this case study, it's by Huang et al. 2019 in the journal Medicine Baltimore. And although it's just one person, I thought it was interesting, and I had a really happy outcome for this one woman. I was going to say that's spelled H W A N G. Yes, Huang. So although mistletoe does have its kind of evil side and it can be used wrongly in medicine there's, there's a nice a nice happy story at the end and it's great for ecosystems so mistletoe is still festive i feel like it's it's that aunt you have around at christmas it kind of brings the whole family together because she's really jolly but then she's just you know hits the alcohol a bit and turns a bit toxic that's that's what mistletoe is a bit into the hemi parasite <laughs> just a bit of a hemi parasite <laughs> an insult for you uh, for anyone you don't like at christmas <laughs> Anyway, that's all we've got time for on the second small festive episode of Darwin's Ooh. Black Book. You can find us on Twitter at Darwin Black Book without the S because we run out of characters or use the hashtag, hashtag DBB. 
You can find us on Spotify and Google Podcast Player and on our website, bit.ly forward slash Darwin's Black Book. And if you do like this, please do let us know. Tweet at us, email us. Much appreciated for any kind words or recommendations for topics you'd like to hear in the future. Once again, I'd like to thank the British Ecological Society for funding the startup of this podcast. You can find them and join the society at britishecologicalsociety.org. Thanks to my mate Ed, who designed our Darwin Head logo. We're also preparing a Q&A episode for the future, so send us any questions or information or anything you have about life via our website, bit.ly forward slash Darwin's Black Book. And that is anything to do with life from Earth and nature. If you have any personal issues... Um, I mean, you can send them. It's probably not going to be much help, but yeah, we can maybe explore the evolutionary reasons behind that. Anyway, <laughs> finally, while we're on the plant theme, if you need a Christmas present idea, I highly recommend Tree Dome. We're not sponsored by them. I just really like them. Um, they will plant you a tree in Africa, which is great for the local communities and the environment. Tom gifted me a cowcow tree last year, which was planted in Cameroon, and I've watched it grow throughout the year, and I absolutely love it. And he's called Terry Orange. Because it's a chocolate tree. Chocolate yeah, tree. I, I always get a chocolate orange at Christmas anyway, so. There you go, Christmas orange. It, it all comes back to the beginning. Cellular story. Hey, Christmas orange. <laughs> anyway, thank you so, so much for listening. We will see you in part three. Goodbye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.